want to welcome everybody. We are wrapping up a sermon series called Time, Talent, and Treasure. And if you're not familiar, uh, like I said, you can always catch it on YouTube or on our Facebook or on uh, the website. Yeah, I knew there was a third one there. Excellent. So Time, Talent, and Treasure is all about the gifts that God has given us. And then what do we do with these gifts? Where we've been, we have talked about what it is to be a steward, what it means to have treasure islands where we hoard everything to ourselves. And today, we're talking about life is different. Has anybody heard that phrase, life is different before? Yeah, if you go to the word serve for any length of time, that's our tagline. Life is different because if we're serving Jesus in a secular world, our lives should be different. The question is how, why? Because if we know how and why, that will sustain us through all the challenges that we might see as we attempt to live this life that is different. All right, so I love the idea of life being different. I really do. I, I wish that uh, every day, every waking moment, I would be the ultimate reflection of Christ. I wish I had a serenity and that peace that passes understanding that nothing in this world rattles me. I wish I could forgive everything that happens to me in an instant. I wish I could forgive seven times 77 seven sevens. I wish I could do all that, but you know what? I struggle with that. Do you? I have this desire. I love the idea of life being different. I'm just not sure I like the, the work that I have to do to make life different. Anybody feel the same way there? Yeah, we're in love with the idea, but are we really different? Now, I was surprised. I, I was doing some research for this sermon, and you hear all the statistics about how Christians in America are not really that different than anybody else. We just kind of blend in. Our lives are not different. Uh, you, maybe you've heard the divorce uh, statistic that about 50% of marriages end in divorce and the Christians are really no different than the, the people who don't believe in Christ. I was shocked as I did some research that came from 2021. You might be too, I hope in a good way. Look at some of these statistics, divorce. Did you know that practicing Christians, oops, and there's that word, practicing, <laughs> not nominal, practicing Christians tend to be 27 to 50% lower of a divorce rate. That doesn't mean zero. It doesn't mean that we're perfect, but it's way better than I thought it was. In other categories, charitable giving. If you're a practicing Christian, you're 80% likely to give to charity versus the rest of the world, 52%. I don't do this to judge those who don't give. I just say that people are living a life that is different. That means that it's possible for us as well. Another statistic, 38% of practicing Christians will volunteer compared to 19% that are non-practicing or secular. I think that's good news. That's good use of time, talent, and treasure. That's what it is to be a steward. Here's the one that concerns me a little bit about moral living. I was trying to do some research, research that says, okay, is there a difference between Christians and, and secular in terms of how we live morally? Because ultimately, that's what guides our behavior. That's what unfortunately shows up in the news and causes all kinds of weirdness. And what I found was there's really no difference. Here's the categories. There's no difference between those who are religious practicing Christians and those who are former religious practicing Christians. That means they've been de-churched. That means they've had an experience where they're maybe not practicing every day. They're not a, a member of a body of a community of Christ, but they've had that in their background and there's no difference. We all agree that moral living is a good thing to do, but here's what scares me a little bit for the future. If they've never had religion, there's a, a, a what am I trying to say, an exponential increase in the last decade from about a 30% increase, and people tend to do what is right to them. 
It's not moral absolute truth anymore. It's what's good for me. And that 30% has happened in the last 10 years. If it's gone from zero to 30 in the last 10 years, where's it going in the next 10 years and the next 10 years after that? See, we have a problem in that we're riding the wave of what our grandparents and parents have handed down to us. But is it our faith? They live differently. Are we living differently? This concerns me for my, my kids and my grandkids, and, and maybe it does you too. But there's hope, and, and there's a little bit of history to this as well. But, but today's words, we're specifically going to talk about stewardship in our context and what do we do with this to make our lives different. And I got to tell you, there's, there's some, some good words here that Paul's going to give us. Paul just lets you have it, doesn't he? Yeah, well, so does the rest of the Bible. But Paul and the prophets uh, are, are really let you have it. And oh, by the way, guess what I'm talking about today? <laughs> Paul and the prophets. <laughs> Strap on, people. Here we go. Button down. All right. So here's, here's a word uh, real quick about how we are rich. Now, you may not feel rich. As you see the bills come in and you're calculating how much money you got left for how much month you got left, and that's not a good ratio, you may not feel rich in, in any given moment, but I want to throw some statistics up here that put it in context globally. The average U.S. household income, $70,784. That's average, right? Now, if you take that out into the world, you are in the top 4% of wealth in the world for a household. Now, think about what that means to some countries. It's like everybody in the household is working. Mom, dad, all the kids are out hustling, trying to make it. So you're in the top 4% of that wealth. But if you take that individually, if you individually earn that and compare that individually to people around the globe, we are in the top 1% of wealth in the world. Does that make you feel any better? Does that help you with the bills? <laughs> yeah, no, right? <laughs> because we also live in a very expensive area in a very expensive time. Now, here's a statistics that, that gets me uh, close to the heart here, being a part of WordServe. Nationwide, U.S. Christians give 2.5% of their income to the church. 2.5%. What does the Bible say? Yeah. yeah, we're a little bit short. Just, just an inkling. But here's the thing that really got me. I, this was a side note on somebody's research, but it got my attention. We give 2.5% today. Guess what they gave during the Great Depression? Because it's right on the street. Yeah, good. Nice. <laughs> Just seeing if you're paying attention. Yeah. During the Great, the, the great Depression, they gave 3.3%. Today, we give 2.5%. Where have we gone wrong? Have we gone wrong? Maybe you don't even think that's a bad thing. But I think we have some history that we have to delve into. And it starts with Paul and his instructions to Timothy. Because Timothy is dealing with a crowd that is rich. But they're not generous. They know what they could do. They know the potential that they have, but they're just not living into that potential to serve the kingdom. And so Paul has some very specific words that he shares for them. And I'm going to read out of uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 17 through 19. These are Paul's words to Timothy to relay to the congregation that Timothy is serving. He says, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. These are the words of God for the people of God, and for these words we are grateful. 
Paul doesn't mince words. It is very straightforward. Let's unpack this for just a second. If you look at what he says, there's a list of do nots and do's. And these are commands. Do you notice the imperative language? It's not like, hey, Timothy, maybe you could mention or could you suggest? No, command. Command them to not be arrogant. Command them to put hope in, not put hope in wealth. <laughs> Freudian slip there, right? That's the American way, right? Because they're putting all their hope in their wealth. They're, they're, that's their security. We talked a little bit about this last week, but if you're relying on money and things for security, you will be disappointed. I guarantee you. It's just a matter of time, if you haven't already. So these are the don'ts. The do's. Do put hope in God. We are not hopeless. In fact, we have the greatest hope of all because God does not disappoint. God does not leave us, does not abandon us, does not fail us, does not forsake us. That's where we should be putting our hope. And what about the stuff that we've been given as stewards to manage on behalf of the king? Let's not forget that part. Well, then we do good with that. And we are rich in good deeds, not deeds of land, <laughs> good deeds. I thought that was funny. Anyway, uh, and we are to be generous, generous and willing. Like sometimes we're generous, but we're not that willing. We're, we're begrudgingly give of our time, talent, and treasure. But what would it look like if we generously gave and we're willing to give of all that we've been given? I think that would be a game changer, uh, no pun intended. So the list of do's and don'ts uh, carry on, but eventually you have to ask yourself my favorite question. What's my favorite question? To what end, right? Yeah, to what end? Look at this. In this way, and this is the last verse that we just read, in this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that, here it is, to what end? So that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Now, if I were to put that into word serve language, so that... Life is different. You want life to be different? Be countercultural. Don't do what everybody else is doing. That's a life that's different. And it's not that hard if you're following Jesus. Because as I look at the world, there's not a lot of that going on. Decreasingly so. And again, not saying that in judgment, saying that in opportunity. We have a tremendous opportunity to show the world a different way, a life that is different. This is how all this happens. Why does... Paul makes such a big deal out of this. Why is he harping on this and using such extreme language like command and tell them, do not, do? Well, I think it's because Paul knows the history. Paul is a Pharisee of Pharisees in his own admission. He knows the history of Israel. He knows the Torah. He knows the law. And he's, he's read all of the books of the Old Testament. He knows it like the back of his hand, which means he knows this history so this history starts off like a joke. There was a prophet, a priest, and a ruler. They walked into a, a city. <laughs> so let me put a little context around this story. This is the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, the rebuilding of the wall of Jerusalem as well. So what happens is God has this way of saying, if you do these things, it's going to go well for you. If you don't do these things, it's not going to go well for you. Well, Prophets had been warning Israel for ages that they had forsaken their covenant with God, that they were doing things that didn't honor God, that didn't follow the way that God asked them to live. And they did not change. And guess what happened? They got overrun by the Babylonians. And this magnificent temple that was actually one of the seven wonders of the world quality was raised to the ground. 
not a stone left standing. Solomon in all his glory, remember that? Yeah, the temple was gone. And, and the most important people were taken into captivity by the Babylonians, who, by the way, were not very nice people. It was pretty desolate. The walls of Jerusalem were torn down. It was pretty much the Wild West there for a while. Imagine going from what Solomon had established to one of the greatest nations in the world to basically desolation in the Wild West. That's where we're at in the context of, of a bit of this story. This story actually picks up about 50 to 70 years. There's a 20-year span where all these things are happening after the Babylonians come and lay waste to the temple. So the priest, or excuse me, the prophet Haggai. Uh, has anybody ever spent any time in the book of Haggai? Yes. Yeah, so, all right. Both of you will appreciate this. This is awesome. Well, this is good because we don't often read those little books. They call them the minor prophets, like they didn't make, you know, they're on the farm team or waiting to bring them up to the big leagues. No, it's not, the, it's not that kind of minor. They're called minor because they didn't write as much as the other guys. They, they got to the point, I guess, right? Or maybe couldn't find paper. I don't know. Limited hard drive. Who knows? Anyway, <laughs> Haggai is the guy that we're talking about, the prophet. He's going to spur people to do good works. The prophets have a way of doing this. They're not always all warm and cuddly. And uh, if, if you're not a warm and cuddly person, you're going to love Haggai then. All right, so the priest is Joshua. He comes from a priestly line. He is sent with the permission of the Persian king, who uh, basically they overran Babylon, right? So now Persia's in charge, and Persia says, yeah, absolutely, go back and build your temple. In fact, we'll provide you some of the materials and armed guards to help you do it. So the priest is of a priestly line. His name happens to be Joshua. That's kind of important in Old Testament literature. So you think the people would go, hey, something's going on here, but it gets even better because the ruler that they appointed, the governor, they called it, of Jerusalem was Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was of the line of David. So if you're an Old Testament Jew and you were still around, which is possible, when all that went down and you saw the temple destroyed, you're like, hey, hey, hey. We're building the temple. We've got a ruler in the line of David. We've got a priest in the priestly line named Joshua. Hey, good things happened last time Joshua was in charge. This is going to be awesome. But it wasn't awesome. I wish I could tell you that this story has a good, happy ending, but it really doesn't. It's not that it's a bad and terrible ending. It's an ending that kind of leaves you going, meh. And, and my fear is that if we don't learn the lessons that they failed to learn, we're going to have the same ending to our lives. We're going to get to the end of our days and go, eh, nothing really great. Serving God. <sighs> but I don't want that to happen to word serve. So let's learn some lessons from them this morning. So here's the first thing that Haggai said. He watched them all go back. He had all, this, all the building materials that they needed, everything that they needed. But Haggai started to notice something. He said, y'all have misplaced priorities. Now, as I go through this, I want you to play in your mind. I'm going to be talking about Haggai in those times. As I talk, I want you to place this into modern context. What would Haggai say to us today here in Fulcher? He says, misplaced priorities. Uh, and, and this is a quote from the man himself. Actually, the man is quoting God himself. He says, is it a time for yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? What is he saying there? He's saying, y'all have come back. Your first priority is to, to, to settle your homes. That's understandable. You need shelter. You need a place to live. But you, do you notice an extra word in there? Paneled? Yeah, a paneled home in that day was extravagant. That was fancy. 
So if you're living in a paneled home, you're like high-end executive house. You know, that's, that's the, the A suite right there. That's the good stuff. The problem with that is that their temple is still in disrepair. So yeah, they had a need for shelter, but they went way beyond the need for shelter. What does that look like today? Why is that so significant that he talks about the house of God is in disrepair? Don't think about how that looked in the Old Testament. The house of God, what happened at the temple in the Old Testament? That was the place where God dwelt. And if God was among his people, they were unstoppable. They had the glory of Israel. They had the glory of God, literally, at the temple. But the temple is not the temple. It's still in ruins because we're worried about the extra upgrade in the home. Now, Haggai is talking about a physical structure. That the house of God is in ruins. But don't miss the spiritual parallel here. Because they believe that the presence of God lived in that temple, what he's also saying is, you got your own stuff together, but where is the presence of God in our lives? That's in disrepair. As much as the temple is broken, the spirit of God in our lives, too, is broken. Misplaced priorities. And it gets better because, well, Haggai's a prophet, and this is what prophets do. <laughs> so stand by. This is what God says through the, the, the prophet Haggai. He's talking to the people. God says, you expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin, while each of you is busy with your own house. Ooh, that, one, that one's a little close to home. That one hurts a little bit, stings. Am I doing the same thing? Am I so worried about my house? And when I say my house, I don't just mean my physical structure. I'm talking about my life, my things. Oh, wait, that's right. They're not my things. I'm a steward of God's things. Is God's house, God's presence in my life in disrepair? So much so that I'm focused on my own thing and forgetting him? Because if that's the case, we're not that different. We would like to think that we're different than these people, but we're not that different. That we're very much the same, cut from the same cloth, living in the same fallen world with the same desires. My hope is that our desire changes today, that it, there is that renewal, that the prophet Haggai speaks to us still today and says, but wait, there's a better way. And there is. That's, that's good news, but not good news yet. <laughs> because the second thing that Haggai says to the people is you all have some shattered expectations. Maybe this is part of your motive. Because you think that coming back here, you would have this temple. Now, if you were around for the first temple and you saw the second temple, it would be the difference between the Taj Mahal and the, the Home Depot shed that you put in the backyard. Right? <laughs> okay, maybe not that bad. It was not as glorious. It was not as big. It was not as fancy. But it was a temple. And some of the older people, it actually says in the book of Ezra, which is another, uh, uh, actually, he was a Torah scholar at the time, wrote the book, says they wept when they saw the temple. Because they knew what the old one looked like, and this, uh, this wasn't it. They actually wept when they saw it. And it wasn't just the, pre the, the look of the temple that they wept about. It was something else. Because in the old temple, when they built that, God's fiery presence descended. You could see. Remember back in the days of Moses when the fire guided them at night and a cloud guided them during the day? That presence rested on that temple and so the people thought, okay, we're going to rebuild this temple. God's fiery presence is going to come here, live among us. We're going to be great again. Make Israel great again. They probably even had hats. I don't know. 
right? But it didn't happen. God's fiery presence didn't show up. And so I said, where is God? Uh, look, we've, we've sacrificed all this stuff. We've put in our money. We put in our effort finally because Haggai made us. He made us guilted and sinned to building this thing. And now God didn't show? Seriously? But don't you think we do the same thing? We express a belief in Jesus Christ as our Savior. We come to church. Maybe we go to a community group. Maybe we sign up to serve. We go, God, my life should be flawless. My life should be perfect. I should be blessed beyond blessing. Why am I struggling so much? Why is this so hard? Where is your presence, God? And I can almost hear the voice coming back. Where is my presence in the rebuilding of my presence in your life? Is my house in ruins in your life? Because we're so distracted with our stuff. Oh, that's right. It's not my stuff. You see how this cycle starts to continue. We're not that different than they are. The third thing that Haggai says, because you always have to have three when you're a prophet, and this is the big one. He says, your covenant faithfulness is lacking. The reason that all these good things aren't happening is because you haven't dealt with the injustice and the apathy. See, we can get pretty worked up about injustice, can't we? When we say something wrong, we, oh, we can get fired up about it. We can get behind that. We'll, get, we'll start a GoFundMe. Uh, we'll sign petitions. We'll do all these things for injustice. But apathy? Meh. And, and do you recognize the same word as the end of this story? Meh. It's not that we don't know. It's maybe that we don't care. To me, that's the worst of all. To know and not care. Man, that's like, I'd rather just not know. The people had apathy. And one of the examples that they had, of course, back in that time, they sacrificed at the temple, and you had to bring a sacrifice. Anybody know what the requirements for that sacrifice was? What kind of animal, like what condition the animal should be in? unblemished, like the best of the best. Like it would be going to H-E-B and, and picking out the very best filet mignon and then taking there and burning it on the altar while you eat hamburger at home. And is anybody hungry now? I, I kind of am. That's it. <laughs> so these people were bringing the, the refuse of their flock. Like these, these animals were damaged. They were subpar. They were, uh, nobody's going to miss this one. Let's just get rid of it at the temple. And the priests went along with it. They could see that this was not an unblemished sacrifice, but they, you know what? Whatever. Let's just, yeah, we're, we'll go through the motions here. Anybody going through the motions in their walk with Christ? I'm not asking for your hands. I'm showing you mine. Because sometimes I do go through the motions. Sometimes God is in disrepair in my life. How about you? So when we start dealing with the apathy, when we start caring, when we start giving our, our full devotion passionately, like engaged, like Jimmy always says, don't rush through this. Don't go, eh, whatever. It's just another time to get together and sing good music. No, no, it's in time to encounter the living God, the creator of the universe. Have you heard of him? Have you heard of his son, Jesus Christ, and what he's done for us? This is our chance to encounter that in this place right now, to be changed from the inside out, to wash away the apathy, and to be pulled into passionate worship. That's what's going to fuel you in the tough times. Not your bank account, not your IRA, not the property that you own, the car that you drive, or what you wear. Passionate connection to God 
is what's going to fuel us in the hard times. And the hard times are coming if they're not already here. I hate to be the modern-day prophet and go, oh, Bill, what a downer. Hey, this is life. You know this. I'm not telling you anything new. There are hard times out there. Wouldn't it be smarter if we prepared ahead of time how we deal with that instead of waiting for it to happen and then go, well, where's God? I think you know the answer to that one. And this is another one that's a little close to home. They didn't take a Sabbath. They absolutely ignored the Sabbath. In fact, they would work on the Sabbath. They would take their booths and things to the walls of the temple and sell things on the Sabbath. Is this ringing a bell? Is this a little too close to home for anybody? Yeah, you know what I found as a, as a pastor? A Sunday is not a day of rest. <laughs> it may come as a shock to you. So I have to find a way to Sabbath. And maybe it's not a day of rest for you, but maybe you can carve out a time of Sabbath. And Sabbath literally means to stop, enjoy God's presence. This is the other thing that Jimmy constantly says. Just take a second and slow down. And the word Sabbath literally means stop, not slow down. Stop and enjoy God's presence. Take time to rebuild his presence in your lives, that spiritual temple that is inside of us. And then we might see something a little bit different because... Here's the way this works. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy in the 28th chapter. If you want to read a, a page turner, I'm being serious for once, read Deuteronomy 28 because it's always a blessing and curse. When God gives the Ten Commandments, for example, he says, if you do these things, it goes well. If you don't, it doesn't. And Deuteronomy 28 is all about what goes good when we are in covenant faithfulness with God and what goes bad when we're not. It's a long chapter. It's got 68 verses, but you won't be the same after you're done reading it, because God predicts everything that happened to Israel. And it wasn't a one-time prediction. This is a condition. If you do these things, then. If you don't do these things, then. Who's to say that if we're not doing these things, the same things don't happen to us? And it is terrible. Let me give you a, a snippet here. Uh, you, you get curses. You get confusion, disease, defeated by enemies, carted off, Lose everything that you own, everything that you planted, you don't get to harvest. Somebody else lives in that beautiful home that you paneled. It's not yours anymore because it's been taken away. Like that. Like a thief in the night. This is what can happen. Do we understand, people, that there are people in the world right now whose sole goal is to come together to defeat whatever cause they're fighting against? And, and we're not their favorite. If you're a Christian and you're American, you have enemies in the world. I hate to break this news to you. There are people who are dedicated to taking you down. In the meantime, we're, we're plotting super counter strategy like what bathroom should our boys and girls use? The important stuff. Man, we're missing it. I, I, we're missing it. It can't continue. That's the confusion that we have, the, the, the defeat that we're facing. Here's one example uh, the, the, this is one of the curses, by the way. This isn't the good news in, in Deuteronomy 28. There is good news in 28, right? This is the bad news, though. The Lord will afflict you with madness, blindness, and confusion of mind. At midday, you will grope about like a blind person in the dark. You will be unsuccessful in everything you do. Day after day, you will be oppressed and robbed with no one to rescue you. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like hell. Literally. This is what's at stake, folks. 
This is why it's so important to live a life as different. This is why it's so important to gauge, not just with the mind, but with the heart, with passion. Reconnect, rebuild the Spirit of God in our lives. Rebuild the house inside of us. If not, then maybe we're just destined to wander. I mean, Israel did it for 40 years. Was it that bad of a deal? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I don't know. If you like manna every day, go for it. If you like not having a place to, to lay your head, go for it. But not only, I think there's more to life than this. We are not destined to wander. We are called by God who organizes, a God who calls us to be his people, a God who calls us to be light among the nations, a God who calls us to live life differently. So how do we do this? Here's the good news in 20 seconds or less. Here's the, here's the formula. It's humble obedience plus action. Humble means I'm willing to put myself under somebody. I'm willing to put myself under God. Who's better to do than that? And I will obey what he says, even when it's not convenient or when I don't agree with it. But it's not just enough to put myself under his authority. I have to act on that. That's the only way this gets out to the world is action. And we turn back towards God. The word repentance means to turn. And everybody always says, okay, repentance means you turn away from sin. Well, that's true, but there's another way to look at it. What if it's not so much about turning away from sin as it is turning back to God? See, when I focus on God and all the good stuff, all the other stuff fades away. Do you notice a theme here in this series? We're giving back. We're turning back. This is the way it was meant to be. This is the way it was in the beginning, and this fallen world that we lived in has pulled us away from that. Maybe it's time to give back and turn back. Here's a great quote. I have no idea who this guy is, but he hit it on the head. In my opinion, the best way of showing someone the best way to live, the best way to live life is by living it. Isn't that the essence of Jesus Christ? He came down to show us how to live, not just the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law, how to do this thing. If we try to convince people of all the things that they should not do in our witnesses, our life is, is different. Like, hey, you guys, you know, if you follow Jesus, you can't do this, 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 and this. And now, by the way, don't do this, this, and this. And, and boy, I, I'm judging you because you're doing that. Don't do that. How many people are signing up for that club, Right. There's a better way, and here's the way. All the things that they're, that they're chasing are like silver. Silver is bright, shiny. It catches your eye. You're like, ooh, that's nice. I want that. And they'll do everything that they can to pursue it. But you know what? They've missed the gold. We were uh, walking through Ireland at one point, and we listened to a little tour guide, and uh, they were describing where you should go in Ireland to see the very best sites. And the, the, the lady asked this uh, American tourist, so where did you go? And, and he told her. And she goes, ah, oh, but surely you've missed the gold. You got the silver, but you missed the gold. Where should you go for the gold? I'll tell you where you go for the gold. Right? And, and, and she told him that this was the place to go. And I, I, I don't know if the guy did it or not. But there was someone who knew that there was something better. As a Christian, don't we know that there's something better? We do, and the best way to show it is to live a life worthy of the calling that Jesus puts on us. In other words, live the life that Jesus would live. Let them see the gold and the silver fades away. Nobody wants that anymore in comparison 
It's what Paul says later when he says, I count everything as rubbish except for Christ because he saw the gold. He rebuilt the temple in his heart. He had humble obedience combined with action. And we can too. So what do we do with this? We repent, we turn. However you want to think about it, if you want to think about it, turn away from sin, great. I want to think about it, turn back to God. Replace hope in God, not in things, not even in each other. Hope in God. That sustains us through the hard times. We are generous and willing. Why? To what end? So that. And to put this in words, sir, speak, we can live a life that is different. That's how we use our time, talent, and our treasure. Who's with me? Thank you, one of you. <laughs> this takes time. This takes prayer. I know that. As we go into the, the last few songs here, I, I pray that you would take time to reflect on that. How is the house of God in your life? Is it in disrepair? Does it need a little repair? Are we going through the motions or are we passionately worshiping? Are we connected with our heads only and not our hearts? Are we connected with our hearts but not our hands and our feet? Have we become disconnected? Whatever it is, it's not beyond God's repair. That is the greatest hope of all. How our story ends, word serve, could either be nah, or Hosanna in the highest. But it depends on what we do from here. What will you do? Will you pray with me, please? God, we thank you for the examples of history. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, most of all, who came and showed us just how to live, not by the letter, not by the rule, out of a sense of duty, but out of a sense of compassion and passionate worship of his father. God, I pray for every individual here. If that passion has died, if that flame is flickering or Maybe it's just an ember this morning. Maybe it's gone straight cold. God, you can reignite that. You can bring the fire back, and I pray that you do that. Not in a way that makes us feel righteous uh, of our own accord, not in a way that makes us feel superior to the world around us, but that reminds us of who you are and whose we are. God, ignite that passion in our hearts again. Lift up the name of Jesus Christ in our lives. Make the the holy, holy again. Make it set apart. Make this something special so that the life that we live is truly a life that is different. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.